0: Let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and this is a special show for us because what you're about to hear is Martin and I chatting with someone who has probably directly or indirectly had some sort of impact on your beer journey. That person is Ken Grossman and he's the owner the founder, and essentially the builder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Co. We're going to say no more at this point, And what we're going to let you do is enjoy Martin and I talking to Ken Grossman.
1: Well, thanks for having me on this morning or this evening for you guys.
0: Without further ado, let's get straight into the first beer that we we're, we're going to drink. And and that is obviously we can only really start in one place, and that is the iconic Sierra Nevada Pale So, um while Martin and I enjoy ourselves drinking this, Ken, tell us all about this beer.
1: So, uh maybe a little bit of, uh, of my background first. So, um I grew up in Southern California and I was in a a, a neighborhood with a bunch of kids and one of my uh, best buddies uh, growing up, so from a very young age, uh, five or six years old. His father was a avid home brewer, home winemaker, home distiller, sake maker, um, mountain climber, cyclist, and um, actually a rocket scientist. He uh, worked for Rockwell uh, as a metallurgist, uh, but he was a very uh, inspired home brewer back in the 50s and 60s. And so I was around uh, his home brewing on the weekends. He would always be boiling something up, and he had rows of fermenters bubbling. So from a very early age, I was, uh, I guess, a little bit immersed in um, the the smells and sights of brewing beer. And I started to brew um, well fifty over fifty years ago now. Um, as a home brewer, I sort of started out uh, sneaking batches in my closet um, uh, in my parents' home and then uh, continued to sort of hone my uh, knowledge about brewing. I moved um, to Northern California in 1972, up to a little town called Chico, a college town. And I continued uh, to homebrew up there. And uh, a couple of years later, I opened a homebrew supply store in 1976 and was a fairly serious uh, homebrewer at that time and went on a visit to San Francisco and saw Fritz Maytag and then went up to uh, Sonoma where New Albion had just opened up the first American craft brewery. And I decided in 1978, I was going to sell my homebrew shop and write a business plan and open a small commercial brewery. Uh, We were fortunate that uh, UC Davis, the Um, University um, down the road had a brewing program. So they actually taught uh, brewing science and uh, had graduated a lot of brewmasters over the years. And uh, actually with a a British professor at the time, uh, Dr. Michael Lewis, who uh, taught the program. And I went and studied down there, uh, self-studied, went and spent a lot of time in their brewing library and talking with uh, Dr. Lewis and the grad students and reading all I could and copying all the information I thought I would need to, um, to learn brewing at a higher level of science. Uh, I had been um, studying chemistry in college, so I came from a chemistry and physics background. Um, I re-enrolled back in our junior college and took um, welding and refrigeration and business classes and electrical classes and um, a a bunch of skill building um, programs. Uh, It was a trade college as well, so they taught a a lot of those kinds of skills. So I did that as I was uh, trying to raise money to open the brewery and build all the equipment. So we, you know, had to cobbled together the the mash tun, the malt mill I built myself from scratch, the kettles, I did all the welding, I did all the refrigeration, all the plumbing. So that took uh, nearly two years. Uh, And by 1980, um, we had a a small uh, 10 US barrel, so 300 US gallon batch uh, size brewery that was capable of brewing 1500 barrels of beer a year uh, I had partnered up with one of my customers from the homebrew supply store, and uh, we started brewing beer commercially, November 15th, 1980. And as far as the pale ale goes, we um, we started actually homebrewing uh, our future pale ale recipe uh, months before we opened the brewery. We started brewing every week. So as we were building and, and constructing the brewery, we were also... Um, experimenting with different yeasts and hops and different formulations for the pale ale. And we had decided to enter the marketplace with three beers, uh, pale ale being our flagship. Uh, We had a porter and a stout. So we had three different beers. And the the next year we came out with our uh, IPA celebration ale. And uh, then the year after that, Bigfoot. So we uh, introduced uh, some of our current classic beers, um, back in 1980, 81. Um, so the pale ale, um, we wanted to focus on a American uh, pale ale, not a, a British style. So we tried to choose a, a hop and a flavor profile that would be pretty unique. And we focused on the cascade hop, which was at the time, uh, ha- had been developed by Oregon state a number of years before, but hadn't really, um, been embraced by too many brewers because of its unique flavor profile it had a lot of pine and citrus and most of the you know brewers and brewmasters of that era uh, were trained in europe and germany or or at least used to brewing using um sort of german noble hops and and uh, in the styles of beers that were popular in america and actually around the world in a lot of areas You know, it was lager styles with not a lot of flavor or character. And so the Cascade being, you know, pungent and unique uh, was really not used by many of the big brewers. It was sort of shunned. And we decided to feature that hop. So the Pale Ale was um, essentially all Cascades and uh, a generous amount um, used during both the Uh, boiling process as well as at the end of the finishing process, so uh, a pronounced amount of aroma. And if you think back to 1980, um, at least in America, uh, the beers were all very homogeneous in flavor, you know, all light lagers pretty much, and all low in bitterness, uh, bitterness around, you know, 14, 15 bitterness units at, at sort of the high end, Um, And our pale ale came in at 38, so it was a bit of uh, an eye-opener for a lot of beer drinkers. And um, it sort of set us uh, a a bit uh, apart from the rest of the industry. We bottle conditioned, and we still do, so the pale ale has live yeast in it. Um, We initially did it out of necessity for a few reasons. One, we didn't have any tanks that could hold carbonation or pressure and so we you know, made our beer like we did when we were home brewing. Um, and the presence of a little bit of yeast and fermentation when you package also helps control oxygen that um, gets into the beer during the packaging operation. And since we, at that time anyway, had fairly crude bottling equipment, um, we sort of needed to bottle condition to mop up any oxygen we picked up. Today, we have you know, the state-of-the-art most modern equipment, but we continue to bottle condition today. And so I'm right in saying that
0: none of your beers are pasteurized either, are they? You're kind of staunchly against that as a, as, as a process, aren't you?
1: Well, in, in general, yes. Um, we, uh, we have a little flash pasteurizer that we use for some of our barrel-aged beers that, um, you know, sit for a year in a used wooden barrel, a wine barrel or something, and, and they might, might have some micro. So we, we do a little bit for some of those specialty runs, but none of our regular um, production beers are pasteurized.
0: And the first time you brewed the, 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 the parallel, you say that was back in November, 1980. Right. Um, what was the initial feedback like? Because wasn't, didn't, didn't a lot of people think that it was a little bit too bitter and, mm-hmm. and that it was something that they'd never really come across before?
1: Yeah. So, uh, t- t- to be truthful, uh, we brewed a, a stout November 15th, 1980. So our very first batch of beer was five barrels of stout and we had no intention on selling it. We were just wanting to, um, sort of break in the equipment and we figured, uh, a-, a dark, uh, heavy beer would sort of cover the, the flaws we made a- on that first brew. But then we brewed pale ale a couple of days later and, um, the first batch turned out okay. We didn't, again, didn't plan on selling it necessarily. It was sort of our test batch. Um, uh, we brewed a second and a third, uh, quickly thereafter. And, uh, the, the third batch, um, was good enough that we packaged some and gave it to friends and saying, you know, this is sort of what our pale ale is going to be like. And, um, we brewed a fourth batch and it was a little different. So we didn't sell it a fifth batch. So we actually dumped the first uh, 10 plus batches of beer. We didn't take to market. Uh, But once we finally dialed in the recipe and got our fermentations consistent, um, we knew we could repeat what we did batch after batch. Uh, We started uh, selling it and uh, we uh, couldn't afford a a six pack carrier. So it was just single bottles of beer. And I I remember walking down the streets with a, a little ice chest and sampling the um, restaurant and bar owners. And um, the majority of them hated it, uh, thought it was way too way too flavorful, way too bitter, uh, way too hoppy. But uh, there were a number of people who said, man, this is great. And um, so we had a, a, a small loyal following. Um, I think I, I like to say 95% of the people who tasted it the first time um, didn't care for it and 5% loved it. And That uh, 5% just continued to grow. And, you know, today the whole beer scene is so different with, um, you know, IPAs at 60, 70, 80 bitterness units um, that our our pale ale now is considered, uh, you know, an easy drinking, um, not overly hoppy beer in in the landscape of today's IPAs and pale ales. I mean, what I do
2: find about the pale ale is just the drinkability and the balance. Um, And I presume that's something you were always aiming for with it how close to the beer that we're drinking in 2021 is it to the beer in 1980, notwithstanding the fact that your skills, technology have all improved. But if I had the opportunity to leap back to 1980, would I recognize the
1: beer? Well, the um, recipe is the same. So we're using uh, the same hops and the same um, bitterness unit level and, um, what has changed is the variety of barley. So back in 1980, we had a variety called Clogus that was sort of the standard two row variety. Um, it had some agronomic issues. And so it got phased out, um, I think in the late 80s. And that happens globally. There's, there's uh, uh, you know, a few heritage varieties that are still being grown, but the majority of barleys have evolved. Um, that probably doesn't have a dramatic overall impact on the flavor. So I would say if you tasted a pale ale today and one back in 1980, they would be very, very uh, close to the same beer. I have to admit, I don't know about you, Steve, but I would love to be able to do that
2: sort of side-by-side comparison of the 1980 version.
1: There there are some brewers um, who cryogenically freeze beers um, and then pull them out years later just for that exact reason, just to see if there's been a drift in the character of, uh, their beer over the years. So people have attempted to do that, um, um sort of, uh, stop time, uh, as far as the aging process and, and, um, allow you to go back and, and taste from the past. The sci-fi holy grail. I think that one is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I take it that's not something you've tried to do, Ken. You you don't Uh, have
1: a bottle of 1980. Uh, Yeah, um... certainly I wasn't thinking about it in 1980, no. (laughs) I I have some beers from 1980, but I'm afraid they've been sitting on my shelf and they wouldn't taste so good today.
0: Back, Back then, you obviously... You obviously had a certain confidence in, in, in your abilities and, and, and the beer that you was producing um, to, to have to have committed to it so early on as, as being obviously one of your three core beers. But then to have gone out and essentially done all the legwork yourself in getting the brand out there and getting it known locally. Um, you were always kind of, I suppose, in the back of your mind, knew that this was going to be a success.
1: No. (laughs) no. Those those early years, it was touch and go. No, there was no, um, uh, you know, no guarantees that it was going to be successful or that we would be successful for that matter. Um, If uh, if you go back to that era. So uh, in the United States, there was a little over 40 brewing companies in existence in 1980, I think 43 or 44 um and that was it that was all the big brewers all the small brewers all the the few of us who had started up in that era Uh, so six small um breweries came into the marketplace between 1978 and 1981 and by 1982 um at least two if not three of those are already closed and um everybody was struggling so um it was not a easy time to be a small brewer, and not that it, it ever is, probably. But back then, it was pretty tough. And out of those six today, I'm the only one left. So five, five have, that had started in that area um, have been out of business or gone out of business. So it was, um, you know, a lot of hard work, a lot of education, um, a, a lot of uh, um, figuring things out on the fly. You know, we didn't know the brewing industry from, uh, you know, the, the distributor side, the, um, you know, retail side, the marketing side, you know, we were just a couple of kids making beer at home. And so we had to learn, you know, how to operate within uh, the, the world of beer and beer distribution. So that was difficult. And, you know, besides, you know, trying to make consistent beer and expand our business at the same time with no money. You know, we were very undercapitalized. Um, we actually, uh, I went over to Germany in the early eighties, I think the end of 82 and bought a used copper brew house, a hundred uh, barrel brew house and brought it back to the States and wrote a, a second business plan and tried to borrow money to install that bigger equipment. Cause we, realized that we couldn't survive off making just 10 barrels of beer at a time. And we were unable to find any financing to install that bigger equipment. So it, it sat in storage until uh, 1988, um, just sat in crates um, waiting for us to grow our business and our bottom line enough that we could uh, borrow some money from somebody. So it was uh, a rough uh, seven or eight years just Getting to a point where we had a real business um, that could, you know, then um, get some uh, capital infusion from banks. During that time,
2: Ken, was there ever a moment where you thought maybe I should have taken the bike shop yeah. option?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, many times.
2: Because <laughs> <laughs> that is a very keen passion of yours is the uh, is cycling, and you were very much uh, a mechanic with the bikes in the early days. So I can imagine that would have been like a. Why am I doing this?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I remember a number of times sitting down because I'd put every penny I had into the business and I didn't really have a backup plan.
0: It must have been um, both rewarding and so heartbreaking at the same time to have to have gone into the brewery every day and to have seen that kit in in storage, not not knowing that you could essentially fulfil its potential.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that uh, you know we we had acquired it with essentially every penny we we had extra, um, and it only cost uh, at the time I think sixteen thousand U.S. dollars to buy uh, the the very pretty copper brewing equipment from Germany. But by the time we got it extracted from the building, crated up and shipped over to the U.S., we had about $60,000 uh, invested and that was every penny we had. So we had no means to do anything with the equipment without um, raising the money. So um, the, I guess the handwriting was on the wall that we better grow our business profitably uh, to a point where we could then justify that kind of investment to install that bigger equipment. And there wasn't like a, an in-between step. So, uh, we just doubled down and, uh, continued to uh, expand our little equipment and add more tanks and brew more brews a day and go seven days a week. And, um, we eventually got up to about 10,000 hectoliters, uh, of annual production. And, uh, at that point, then we had enough cash flow and we were um, you know, putting a little bit to the bottom line that um, in a, a bank could see that we had a, a viable business, but that you know, roughly took eight years. And
0: that, that copper kit that you bought from Germany, is, is that the one that you're still using now that, that sits in the, the, the brewery in Chico at the moment?
1: Yeah, it is. It was built originally in 1961 by Hoopman and it was installed at a a small family brewery uh, in the town of Aschaffenburg. Um, um, it was called, uh, it's part of Bavaria, the edge of Bavaria. Um, and it was located uh, by Hoopman for us as a, as a shuttered brewery. And um, it, it uh, came over to Chico, I say in the early eighties, um, and we're brewing on it still every day today.
0: That's, that's, that's incredible. I mean, it's just a, uh... That, that's a sign of craftsmanship there, isn't it? That a piece of equipment that was designed all that time ago is, is, yeah. is if you look after something and you treat it well, it, it will continue to work, won't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, 60 years old and it's brewed beer uh, pretty much every every day or most every day since then.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's one hell of a story about a piece of kit, isn't it? That's brilliant.
0: Yeah. So, what was the um? What was the first brew that you did on that kit? It must have been parallel as well. The, the, the no, course.
1: actually, it was stout because that's been a tradition of ours now. We the very first time we commission any brewing equipment, we make the same recipe of stout that I made in my very first uh, brew. We actually try to do it on November fifteenth. So, our our uh, uh, we and we've done it most of the times. We target November fifteenth to commission a new brew house. So, we did that in. Uh, Chico um, when we uh, first commissioned uh, the, my original kit, then we did it when we brought in the one from Germany, we did it when we expanded and we did it in North Carolina as well so um, it's sort of a, a, of a history for us now that we we break things in with that stout recipe. Well speaking of which that would seem like a, an excellent opportunity
2: because the pale ale disappeared Steve.
0: It it always does. I've I've, I've just got to say, Ken, it's as much of a a pleasure as it is to sit here chatting with you. It's it's also a great opportunity to um, thank you for brewing that that parallel, because it's been a beer that certainly for for me has has been a real part of of, of my beer journey, more or less every step along the the, the way. And I know a lot of our listeners as as well have have said in the past and very much relate to the fact that that was really there, kind of craft beer awakening was the first time they tried Sierra Nevada parallel. And and that has just been just those few moments of listening to, to you. You talk about the early days there while enjoying y- your beer was, was a real kind of bucket list moment for me. So mm-hmm. thank you for that.
1: I think Martin mentioned uh, balance and and that actually is one of the things we've uh, really tried to achieve. Even when we make really hoppy beers is, is trying to have them have a level of drinkability um, so that, you can enjoy a second one or, or more if you're so inclined, um, but uh, trying to keep the, the hop and the malt character um, in a balanced range so that it's still pleasing, even though it, it may be really hoppy, um, really uh, intensely flavorful.
2: I think with, uh, to echo what Steve said, I think with the pale you definitely have achieved that over the years. It's definitely one of my craft beer moments and certainly the beer club i've been running at work for 10 years it it featured in the second tasting and again for a lot of people it was like wow hey what is this and where does it come from and how do i you know how do i get hold of it the stout which you mentioned earlier has been one of your you know your first brew and also bringing out the porter at the same time one thing i noticed there when you said that is that you bought a a pale and two dark beers at the same time (laughs) which is almost counterintuitive to the way you described what the beer market was like in the States, with it being mainly light lager driven. What prompted you to do a porter and a stout as well as the palau
1: Well, again, we were uh, uh, very naive uh, about the beer industry and the consumer. Uh, we enjoyed stouts and porters drinking uh, ourselves. Um, I think we were somewhat inspired by the historic nature of, of what um, small breweries were doing uh, 100 years before, and and we had some old brewing texts and old um, historical brewing books, and quite often you'd see so-and-so's small brewery, and written on the side of the wall of the brewery was, um, you know, um, Steve Smith's Pale Ales, Porters, and Stouts, and um, so it was uh, more of a throwback to sort of the era that we were um, wanting to recreate with our beers and uh, ales, porters and stouts were, you know, more commonplace a uh, hundred or 150 years before and little breweries that sort of was their lineup. And, and um, that's all the, um, you know, the, the, the market research we did, not what the consumers wanted, but sort of what our, our history would have looked like if we had opened up hundred or 150 years before. And obviously uh, people consume a lot less dark beer. And so uh, in our business plan, I think we showed selling equal amounts of pale ale, porter and stout. And obviously that wasn't the case. We sold 90% pale ale and uh, you know a few percent porter and stout.
2: Looking at the bottle that I've got in front of me, it makes a point of saying West Coast style stout. What's the thinking behind that? Is it, I mean, is it, there is quite a bit, there is a bit of a hoppy character to this stout. Is that what you're sort of referring to?
1: Yep. 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 We, uh, um, you know, again, try to balance the malt and the hops, but uh, we, you know, made a hoppy stout from the beginning. Um, So it had, you know, higher bitterness levels in the pale ale and and very malty, as opposed to a a sweet stout that uh, maybe had a lot of malt character and very little hop character. So uh, we wanted to, you know, impress uh, the point that it was a hoppy style of stout. And that wasn't on the package in the beginning. So that got added, you know, at some point over the years, just as, a, um, I guess, to set the tone of what the beer is going to be like um, for those who understand East Coast and West Coast uh, variations in, uh, in hopping. So early on, when IPA started to become popular, and uh, a beer like our Celebration Ale, um, which is, you know, quite a hoppy and dry hopped IPA, Uh, On the East Coast, uh, during that same early or late 80s, early 90s era, um, the IPAs back there were much sweeter and less bitter. And so there started to be the East Coast, West Coast um, division between brewers. And and mostly in good fun, we would, um, you know, jeer each other about, uh, you know, whose beers are better balanced, more drinkable, more flavorful and uh, a brewer came out with a device to add, you know, hops as the beer was dispensed, and the people on the West Coast said, we, we put our hops in where they belong in the beginning of the brewing process. We don't have people, and, and infuse them on the way to the uh, to the glass, so um, there became a friendly rivalry between the, the two coasts, and I, I think that stylistically is, is not so uh, much of a distinction anymore, although the the hazy IPA uh, craze that's um, you know happened in the U.S. was somewhat a, an East Coast style of having very hop forward but not necessarily bitter um, IPAs. So the the hazy IPA style is more of a, um, a high flavor, moderate bitterness versus the West Coast style of IPA, which is more of a a higher bitterness higher hop flavor um, a little bit drier potentially
2: okay so you're mentioning the the west coast was something that came later on as the east West coast battle lines was sort of drawn over the years I had no idea it went back so far I thought it was a, re- a fairly recent east-west uh, battle.
1: No, it probably started, I'd say, in the late '80s, early '90s, when um, a few of the East Coast small brewers started making IPAs. They they tended to be uh, more afraid of of uh, high hopping rates, and and so they were, you know, sweeter styles and less hoppy. Steve, your
2: view on the stout, then, mate? How much? – all right. Is there anything bad about this stout for you? <laughs> yes.
0: No, I mean, I I, I I love a dark beer. I really do. I think that I'm very much, I'm, I'm quite a seasonal drinker. I, I, I tend to veer more towards darker styles in the winter and then enjoy the lighter styles in the summer. But I do also think there's a place for a perfectly chilled stout or porter on a really, really hot day. I think they give you a bit of a, bit of a hit of refreshment that sometimes an IPA or a pale or even a lager just can't do. I think there's something about them. For me, this stout is it's it's actually almost perfect it's got the balance between the, the the dry roasted almost dark chocolate bitter notes that are going on in there and then you do have this lovely hoppy hit towards the end of it that brings through this bitterness um again though i think i think the key thing for me is is that word that we've used a few times ken and that's that's balance that there's a there's a certain balance to every single sierra nevada beer that, that is just so prevalent in, in, in your beers?
1: Yeah, you mentioned uh, on a hot day, a, a chilled stout. Um, what's also actually um, quite drinkable is on a hot day, a not chilled stout. And um, you, you find you know, stouts actually uh, in some very warm climate parts of the world and because they don't have refrigeration often. And um, I've had our, you know, our stout unrefrigerated on a hundred degree day, and it's still quite um, drinkable. Whereas if you had a hot lager, uh, it, it may not give the same kind of, um, of quenching or refreshing as, a, as a, a room temperature stout does on a hundred degree day.
0: And much, much the same as the, the, the pal. Is, is this again, pretty much the original recipe that's being
1: produced now? Uh, very, very close. Um, the, the stout that we produce when we commission new equipment is a, a, a little bit different um, with roast barley and lo- slightly different grist, but it's very, very close to our original stout.
2: What I want to know, Ken, is we've shared our sort of beer epiphany moment. Um, I'm going to assume you've got one as well. What, what was the beer that said to you, oh, there's something else other than light lager?
1: You know, as, as I mentioned, I had a neighbor who was a home brewer, so I used to sneak his beer, his son and I used to sneak a little bit of his home brew, and, and um, he actually would brew stouts as well, and so, you know, going back to my early, early memories of beer, I would say there, there were some of his beers that were pretty amazing. Uh, as far as commercial beers, um, you know, back in that time period in the... Uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, the brewery called Ballantine um, was uh, still around and hanging on. And they made a barrel-aged IPA. And on the package, it said, uh, age one year in wood. And um, it was a, uh, a phenomenon that uh, w- was hard to find, particularly on the West Coast, but um, my uh, homebrewing neighbor he would seek it out and I remember drinking one of uh, one of his or tasting one of his um, uh, wood aged uh, Ballantine IPAs um, and, and it being quite remarkable and you know it said right on the label age one year wood and, and it cost about a dollar more a six-pack than a regular beer did back in in the late 60s early 70s and he would remark you know how can they do that how can they age a a beer for a year and would and charge, uh, you know, a dollar more a six-pack. Well, they didn't very long. They went out of business um, soon thereafter. But um, it was uh, one of their specialty offerings, and I still remember that um, tasting that. And actually, I had a chance to taste it again later um, with Fritz Maytag. Matter of fact, uh, back in um, around 1980. So sorry,
2: I, I, I'm, I'm. This may be my naivety coming through. Is that there was barrel-aged IPAs in the yes. 60s. See, I thought the barrel-aging aspect of IPAs dates back to centuries ago because that was the only way we could store them and send them abroad, etc. What you're saying is that there was a brewery in the States, despite everything else that was going on, despite the lack of commercial nounce about doing it, who were barrel-aging an IPA in the 1960s.
1: Yep, yeah, maybe even in the fifties. So, 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 uh, and they weren't their normal. um, So, Ballantine had a uh, ale um, that was uh, an analog or two, um, and they were very early adopters of of hop distillation. And uh, they would actually had their own hop stills, and they would uh, add hop oil to their beers back in that era as well. Um, so they had a distinctive hop note, uh, which again, if you loved it, you loved it, but it, it, uh, obviously they didn't survive. Um, and they were a pretty large brewery that was sort of trying to be very distinctive at the time. Uh, but for like Christmas gifts and things like that, they would, um, barrel age. And I think when we talk about barrel aging, a, a little bit of a different, um, probably reality. They, they aged in wood. I don't know that the, um, the intent was to extract a lot of the wood character, because a lot of breweries back then did have wooden fermenters and, and um, wooden storage tanks. And uh, in many cases, they were lined with wax or 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 some other coating inside the wood. So, I think the intent was not so much to extract um, wood flavor as it was, they were aging the beer um, in a tank that was wooden uh, and it may have been completely or nearly lined with some kind of a, of a coating. So um, I think l- less to extract the wood and more that that's just what they um, stored their beers in for the year uh, cycle. I'm still I'm
2: still gobsmacked by the revelation of 1960s barrel-aged IPA with hop <laughs>
0: oils in it as well. Yeah. Like, Seriously?
2: <laughs> and like 40 years too early, by the
0: sounds of it. It, it does yeah. feel like it's almost come full circle, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like they were way ahead of their time.
1: They were. I said the brewery closed, they got, the label got bought by somebody. They moved production to another brewery. It was never quite the same. So um, yeah, very, very uh, early Valentines that I remember, I think were uh, a lot more memorable than the ones that came uh, shortly thereafter.
2: Yeah. I mean, that, that does sound a bit of a shame, but yeah, I, I can't imagine the selling of that as in like any sort of mass market or even almost niche market, <laughs>
1: Yeah, again, they uh, they did produce a lager. So that was probably, they saw the handwriting on the wall and they're, uh, they had an ale and lager out. I remember right when I was just in my youth. Uh, and then uh, years later, when we were starting the brewery up, we bought um, a whole warehouse full of uh, returnable beer bottles with labels on them that we were uh, set up to wash the labels off, sterilize the bottles and reuse them. And so when we first started the brewery, our, our bottle source was thousands of cases of bottles that came from closed breweries. And one of the breweries we bought a lot of cases of, um, of empties from was the Meyer Brewing Company uh, in Southern California, uh, which had gone out of business quite a few years before, but in their warehouses were pallets and pallets of empty bottles. And, we brought all those up to Chico and, and ran them through our bottle washer. And sadly, uh, you know, a lot of those bottles were from the forties and fifties and the labels on them were um, these just amazing brands that had uh, long since ceased to exist. And we, you know, I, I pulled out a few unique bottles. So I have some from, from that era, but I, I have uh, lucky bankers ale you know, made by the lucky lager brewing company and um, we did get some of those Valentine's bottles. Um, uh, some were given away as Christmas gifts, the barrel-aged stuff, or wood-aged uh, stuff. Um, so we, we got to see a lot of brands that uh, had come and gone that were trying to to make special beers or specialty styles of beers, um, but didn't have good market success with it. So those, uh, you know, lucky, lucky Lager, having a, a banker's ale uh i was never never saw that never heard of it never was aware that they they did i just ended up with an empty bottle that um had that label i mean it's great that the whole
2: you get the chance to uh use those uh bottles in your early days and stuff there must be a slightly tinge of sadness that these are breweries that have fallen by the wayside and will never rise again so to speak
1: yeah. There's a tinge of sadness there. And in hindsight, if I would have hung under those empty bottles with those cool labels, I could have funded my um, <laughs> rather than washing them all off. And,
2: and, and, and. Yeah. M- the mother of necessity. eh? <laughs> yeah. um, well, I've, I've, i t- again, we, w- the word balance we won't be the last time we use it again. The stout has just gone. Um, it, it's, I, the first time I had the stout, I had a little bit of a look and like a lot of people I use untapped and the first time I had my recorded usage it was 2014 and I don't think I fully appreciated it for what it was, the that hoppy element of mm-hmm. the stout. I think it caught me out but the more I've had it over the last couple of years and maybe the more I've thought about it, the more I've appreciated it. The, the, the hop and the mop balance is absolutely superb and... I mean, what percentage is, I mean, does this come in at? Because it is very drinkable. Is it 5.8? Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's it's above maybe what people might class as sessionable. And I reckon you could sit in your bar in Chico and and have a few of those and maybe pay for it later on, especially when you follow it up with (laughs) the next beer.
1: (laughs) You know, we've uh, over the years produced a a lot of different stouts uh, that don't get widely distributed. So we have some low alcohol stouts that we uh, have served over the years at our, our uh, tap rooms in, in Chico, North Carolina. Um, you know, the 4% or so um, nitro stouts, we we produced those. We've produced um, a lot of barrel age versions. So um, again, there's a, a, a not necessarily a wide market for beers like that, but there's a, um, a group of, of folks that like to, Uh, enjoy their dark beers with roasted flavors so we've made a big range of stouts
0: just just one final question on on the stout before we move on to to the next beer and and that it's to do with your, your, your branding i mean the sierra nevada branding is is completely iconic it 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 sort of always kind of harks back to your 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 heritage and your history and where you're based and 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 the stout has this wonderful hand-drawn picture on it of of what looks like a tiny little Sierra Nevada brewery I'm gonna guess that is that supposed to be a representation of the very first brewery that you built
1: it is yes
0: I just love that I love I love that little touch that you've on the, on, on the label of the first beer that you brewed, you've got a picture of the place where it was brewed. I I, I Mm. think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, So, so cool. That, that, that you, you, I I love, I love the Sierra Nevada branding. I I think it's, it's one of those things that it's timeless and, and it really does stand out on, on a shelf against some of its contemporaries as well.
1: Yeah. We actually, the person who drew the first label was a home brewer and was in the, Maltose Falcons, which uh, was the very first homebrew club uh, in America. And uh, that was uh, the homebrew shop right down the road from my uh, family's house that I grew up at. And so the, the sort of the history of West Coast Brewing, that label, all that, all, all are tied together through uh, homebrewing.
2: As Steve pours the next beer, the which is the torpedo extra IPA, you keep obviously referring back to uh, the home brewing of your your neighbor, your friends, your friend's yeah. father, yeah. your yeah. history, all the time. This was illegal, wasn't it?
1: Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and this is a throwback to prohibition, isn't it? Or the repeal of prohibition?
1: Yeah, when prohibition was repealed, they they did make an allowance for home winemaking but they never put on the books uh, an allowance for home brewing. Um, I'm not aware of anybody ever being arrested for home brewing beer, um, but it was uh, not technically legal um, until right about when we started uh, the brewery, I think 76, um, uh, when it became legalized, but it was, uh, again, not, not something that was uh, a high crime and misdemeanour that you would get uh, thrown in jail for. I'm
2: oh, very glad to hear it. <laughs> I've just cracked
1: open my torpedo IPA, so
2: I'm
0: just going to have a quick sip of that. Well, while, while Martin's enjoying his, Ken, um, obviously we are going to talk about torpedo now. You decided you needed to find a way of getting more hop characteristic into a beer, didn't you, in in the development of this particular beer
1: yeah, so I guess a little bit of history about the, the torpedo. So the torpedo is both a, a device um, and it's a beer. Um, and we have uh, had a number of brands over the years that have been dry hopped. And for the listeners who don't understand exactly what that is, it's, um, you know, infusing hops uh, into beer, either during fermentation or after fermentation, versus the normal use of hops, which is uh, historically been in the kettle. And so most hops get boiled and they're boiled for a variety of reasons. One, it sterilizes them. Uh, two, it extracts the alpha acid and beta acids, the the bitter fraction of the hop. And three, it uh, allows the hop oil um, to get um, volatilized and, and both driven off in some cases. Some brewers don't want a lot of some of the hop Uh, oils. Uh, There's literally hundreds of compounds uh, that go into a natural hop um, that are created um, during the growth of that hop. And so some brewers boil the hops to drive off the myrcene and some of the other volatile compounds that that cause, uh, you know, a lot of those aromatic qualities that we love. Um, And dry hopping allows you to uh, infuse the beer with Um, a lot of that aromatic oil, but not convert or extract much of the bitterness. And so we dry hopped uh, Celebration in 81, our first year to brew that. We dry hopped Bigfoot in 82. um, And we've dry hopped a lot of beers over the years. The uh, challenge with conventional dry hopping, and we still do it, a lot of it, is you, in our case, use whole cone hops and you put them in a big mesh bag and you secure that mesh bag in your aging tank, your your fermenter, and then you fill it up with beer, and uh, you allow that big tea bag to sort of s- steep in the beer for days or a week or so. Uh, it's quite messy and labor intensive, and we can't put those kind of bags in all of our tanks. They're just not designed uh, to take a, a bag through a manway door. And so we started experimenting with a way to dry hop differently. And we came up, um, we, we were experimenting with Celebration Nail one year and came up with a, uh, a, a tank, a vessel that we could pack full of whole cone hops and then circulate the beer through. And so that we nicknamed the torpedo cause it was a tall cylindrical, vessel uh, with the dome top and bottom and so we played around with that one year and then the next year we came out with torpedo the beer which utilized a bunch of those torpedoes packed full of fresh cone hops and um, the beer circulated through it um, for a matter of days so um, it's a process uh, a little less labor intensive but when you're using a whole cone hops like we primarily do uh, they're still you know, quite bulky and, and a little difficult to handle, um, both dry and wet. Um, so the, the, the beer and the process, uh, the torpedo beer and the torpedo process go together. But we use the torpedoes to, to do other dry hopping as well.
0: I, I think the outcome is essentially a, a, a another delicious beer. Um, yeah. it's, it's a beer that actually takes all, all of those characteristics and those flavors that you're used to, from from a Sierra Nevada beer and and it does just magnify them um but particularly with the the, the torpedo what i find is you get this fantastic resonance quality about it you, the, the, the the pine that that citrus finish on it it's it's all there but it's amplified um but again it's that the balance and the drinkability of this beer for uh, what this is seven and a half isn't it it's 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 off the charts isn't it
1: yeah so um, one of the the reasons why we've continued to use whole cone hops and, and we still um primarily do although we, we experiment with all sorts of other hopping products these days but um, you know, when you take and process a hop and turn it into a pellet or a powder or an extract, it, it does change the nature of the hop flavor and, and character. And in the case of producing a pellet, most of them are done with a hammer mill. So you take the fresh um, dried hop and you pulverize it into a powder and that ruptures the the aromatic glands and it, it breaks down some of the the green leafy matter of the hop into, you know, fine particles. And so the flavors that are extracted from a, a, a palate are a bit different uh, in overall character than uh, to take that hop unprocessed and immerse it in the beer. Uh, you just extract different uh, levels of compounds from the hop um, with it not being powdered. And so we, we find that uh, we can you know, typically tell a dry hopped beer that was made with pellets versus one that was made with whole cone hops, the, the nature of the flavor is, is a bit different. Uh, and, and it's not to say that um, powders or pellets produce an inferior beer, they just produce a different uh, flavor profile.
0: And it's, is that why you're so committed to using whole cone hops wherever possible?
1: Yeah, again, we think they bring a a little bit, um, you know, less of a vegetative uh, character. Uh, When you, you know, grind up the hop, it does uh, allow more of the uh, plant material to be extracted, more of the tannins and and other flavors. So, um, and again, we use both products, but we are firmly committed. Um, You know, the brands that started out with whole cone hops are going to continue to be made with whole cone hops. So the pale ales, all whole cone, the Porter, the stout, the um, you know the beers that had that sort of pedigree will continue to be made that way. And am I right in saying that you
0: grow your own hops as well?
1: We have a uh, experimental uh, hop field and barley field, <clears throat> so we we have um, over a hundred acres of <clears throat> of ground that we farm. So we have our own little farming crew, and we have a hop picking machine, and we built a hop uh, kiln. Um, so we do, um, uh, do some full estate beers. So it's all organically grown. So we, we grow and harvest and do all that ourselves and, and make, um, make the beer from hundred percent of, uh, of materials that we grow ourselves on our own property. So we started doing that, uh, probably 15 years ago uh, with hops and, and malt. And is that, is that. That site at Chico, where you, you, you do
0: all of that growing, or is that?
1: That's all in Chico, yeah. We, we have a little bit of hops growing in uh, North Carolina, and we've grown some barley, but um, we're not... Um, the, the, the climate conditions there, it's pretty moist, and uh, so there's more problems with mildew, and to try to do it organically is pretty difficult uh, in that climate for uh, hops and barley. Sorry, I was just going to ask again. We've mentioned
2: Chico quite a few times which is obviously the home of sierra nevada your home for a a long while where is chico in so people might know chico is sierra nevada home but in california in relation to other parts of your vast states let alone the country um where is it where's the closest place that most of our listeners may recognize for example
1: uh we're north of san francisco um and a little bit east of san francisco about uh two and a half hour three hour car drive and chico was it by accident
2: or by by design because did you ever mean to end up in chico for well effectively the rest of your life when you first turned up
1: well i moved there um with a couple of college um buddies uh they were a year ahead of me um and they were moving to go to Chico State. And I had just graduated from high school and wanted to leave Southern California. So I moved up with them and they attended college and I started working in a bike shop. And then uh, fairly soon after I also started going to college. So it's a college town, it had a, uh, a junior college, a preparatory college, as well as a university. And so a fun town, you um, know, a lot of, uh, uh, of young people for the size of the town. It was very small when I moved there, less than 40,000 people. And the university was about uh, 15,000 of that. So um, it was uh, very much of a, of a fun, young, young city, close to the mountains, um, uh, creeks and rivers flowing by, uh, nearby. So there was a lot of recreation you could do. Um, so just sort of fell in love with it, met my wife and um, uh, been here ever since.
2: And your wife has stuck through your obsession with the brewery through thick and thin for decades. And am I right in thinking she doesn't drink beer?
1: Uh, yeah, that's correct.
2: <laughs> and yet, that, I mean, that is Ken. That's love. Seriously, <laughs> that that is that is love. Uh, your your daughter. One of your daughters is called Sierra.
1: Yeah, yeah, my oldest daughter is called Sierra, and she works at the brewery here in Chico, and then. I have a middle daughter, Carrie, who does not work in the company currently, and then uh, my son Brian is out in North Carolina. Uh, he moved out there in 2012 when we first broke ground on that facility. And what he stayed out there since? Has he? Yep, he's still still at uh, part of the team out there.
2: Does he enjoy? Does he enjoy? It? I mean, does he enjoy the bit? But he must be a little bit of a distance, literally a distance between your your element of Sierra Nevada and being in the Carolina the Carolina one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time out there during, uh, starting in 2012, I I would actually spend a week there and a week in California. So, uh, for several years I did commute every other week. Um, so, you know, he, he was there through you know, the construction I I stayed at his house. Um, so we, we, we connect uh, very regularly and, um, uh, we get out to North Carolina. Well, pre-COVID, we got out there all the time. Um, not right now, not so often, but we'll, we'll plan on uh, making regular visits. We've got two grandchildren out there and and three in California, so um, we'll split. We'll split a lot of time between the two um, parts of the country. Uh, and
2: sorry, just again for me, for me and Steve and the listeners, travel. Be- from you in Chico to where the brewery is in, in North Carolina. How long does
1: that take? Um, it takes a long time. It's, a, it's a almost 2,000 miles, so uh, it's an you know, all-day flight, or six, six or seven hours, depends on how you go, but many hours.
2: The, the vastness of the Ameri- America is just sometimes overwhelms me when I think about it because that's fairly much the same time as going from London to New York or London to Boston. And we've yep. crossed a whole ocean in that time and you're yep. still on you're still crossing a landmass yeah i think that's i mean that is uh you know fantastic but uh two out of the three siblings are very in, help invested in the brewery maybe the third you know um who knows whether the third one will dive in as well
1: yeah she used to work for us and and uh, i think the the dynamic of three siblings is, was too much two two is a, is a good number
0: I've got two brothers. I understand. <laughs> and it, and it's still very much a family business as well, isn't it? Isn't, isn't yes. it, Ken? It's, it's very independent uh, as well. You wholly own the, the the business and you're still the third largest independent brewery in the States, are you?
1: Um, second or third, yeah.
0: And that's, I mean, that's saying something, isn't it? When, when When you go back to what you were saying to us earlier, that when you first started brewing, there were only... 40, 44 breweries, something like that. Yep. And and the ones that started with you all fell by the wayside. And mm. yet you're here and you're still going and you're still expanding and you're, you're still successful. Um, that, th- that There's got to be something said for, I suppose, the commitment that you've put into the, the, the business and the brand but also the output as well because you wouldn't be this successful if your beers weren't as good as they are would you
1: well uh, that's certainly part of it um you know um we we've uh, i guess not made too many mistakes um you know everybody makes mistakes and the hope is you learn and and uh, become a better person and a better company through your mistakes um but, uh, you know, certainly a lot of hard work, uh, good beer. And, and today, you know, the, the beer industry, the craft industry, you know, I don't know how many brewers are going to survive through COVID, but, you know, there's um, six or 8,000 or something that uh, are now in existence in America. Um, and the level of knowledge and the quality of beers is, is certainly dramatically improved from, you know, when I started. Um You know, the the six of us that started in 1980 were really having to figure out how to, you know, make beer with very little knowledge, you know, pre-internet, not a lot of technical books that were aimed at brewers of our size and caliber. And so, you know, we were reading um, books and, and periodicals from the 40s and 50s, which was about the level of technology that most of us could afford and, and master, um, you know, we were, you know, doing stuff on small scale by hand, you know, mixing, you know, the mash with a canoe paddle and, um, you know, none of the, you know, modern brewing methods uh, addressed, you know, brewing on that scale. Um, but back in the you know, 40s and 50s, that was more commonplace. So, We were just figuring stuff out and trying to blend modern science with, um, you know, historical brewing, and uh, it was hard. And you know, try to make consistent beer with, you know, very limited uh, financial resources was hard. So that early group of brewers, you know, we we uh, pioneered a lot and paved the way and learned a lot, but. Uh, today, there's, you know, dozens of books and online information. I mean, brewers and consumers today know so much more about beer and brewing than, than they did back when we first started. Um, you know, the access to information was just not there. And today, um, you know, if you are so inclined, you can study brewing science on your own and become, you know, a very competent brewer and, and very knowledgeable about beer and brewing science. Where do you think that puts
2: Sierra Nevada these days? So do you think sometimes people don't forget you, but bypass Sierra Nevada because you have been around for so long? Is there a danger people just assume you'll always be here? And do you have to carry on uh, innovating, producing, not quite reinventing, but just reminding us that you're here?
1: Most definitely. Yep. Yeah. The consumer's got so many choices today and, um, there's so much innovation happening in the beer space, um, with some things that are amazing and some that are really crazy, but, uh, um, they you know, the consumer is, is driving, um, sampling and, and driving the brewers to, you know, make bigger, different, stronger, um, weird concoctions, milkshake IPAs, uh, you know, the, the, the waves of uh, innovation are, are pretty crazy at some times, but uh, I drank some, uh, a number of milkshake IPAs yesterday, uh, a style, that I don't know if you've seen or heard or tried, but, um, you know, just a crazy innovation of, uh, you know, lots of fruit puree and, um, uh, slightly sour, um, um mash, um, so the, the, the range of beer and beer styles today is, is phenomenal. And for us to be you know, relevant and to keep people interested and excited, um, we do have to play in that arena. But we also, you know, we're traditional brewers by heart, and, and so we also need to make sure we you know, um, both uh, maintain our, our credibility in brewing new and innovative stuff, as well as um, try to get people to you know, come back to the tried and true because our, um, you know, our beers are drinkable and they're balanced and they're stable and, and they're dependable. And, and I think, you know, for some people, after they've uh, had a couple of misses, they do come back to, to brands they know and trust. I think that's quite
2: a good segue to the, the last beer of of the of what we're drinking today, the Fantastic Hayes Imperial IPA. Um, so again, We spoke about the hazy beers and, you know, you've already educated us by saying there was a bit of an element of this going on back in the eighties and nineties. Whereas I thought it was a much more recent innovation. And so Sierra Nevada produced what I would like to class as a West coast style version of a hazy IPA. Um, What prompted you to do that? Obviously you've spoken about keeping up, but did you have any hesitation about Jumping on that particular hazy bandwagon,
1: um, yeah. So I guess to go back in history, all of our beers were hazy back in the eighties. We we didn't do it. We didn't do any filtration. Um, we just uh, we didn't have any technology to do that. So uh, depending on the protein content of the malt and the, the you know the uh, the batch of of uh, malt we got, some of our beers would be really hazy. Some would be a little bit hazy. We'd get complaints about it, and we bottle conditioned, so we had sediment and we weren't as good as uh, we are today in controlling the level of, of yeast in the bottle and so that was that plagued us and we eventually put a filter in and and uh, uh, at least remove some of that haze material um when we uh first introduce our hazy little thing so you're drinking um a more recent uh, hazy that we've got but uh yep yeah, um So you've got even a different hazy. So we make quite a few hazies. So that purple can one is a lower alcohol version just for the UK. Um, Our hazy little thing for the US market is a a, a little bit stronger. And then you've got our imperial hazy as well. So um, there there are a range of hazies we've been producing the last few years. And it's a style that that uh, you know we we sampled, um, and a lot of the early hazies and still some today are hazy because of yeast and suspension, uh, as much as protein. And you know, for us as a as a brand that distributes cross country, having a whole bunch of yeast in the can is not an ideal way to try to make a hazy beer because it settles out and. Uh, becomes uh, unstable and the yeast will autolyze. It'll eventually die and uh, start to break down. And so we focused on making our hazies with um, protein um, bearing grain. So it's got a lot of wheat and oats and, um, and we do our best to, to keep that protein uh, in a um, in balance so that it stays up in the suspension. It's actually really hard to make a hazy beer stable. Uh, way easier to make a clear beer, um, as it turns out. Um, but we started to, you know, realize that a lot of beer drinkers, you know, are turned off by the really hoppy IPA, um, the, the the hop levels in some of the IPAs. And so I think the, the hazy brewers realized that you could get a lot of flavor and mouth feel and character from some of those uh, proteins and uh, how they bind with the hops. And so the hazy phenomenon really was was about making a highly flavorful, um, not overly bitter IPA that just had a, a lot of character and was easier to drink for a lot of consumers who still loved the hops, but uh, didn't necessarily love the, the bitterness level. And so we started playing around with, uh, with the hazy uh, recipe and we brewed dozens and dozens of them and, until we finally came up with what we thought was um, a really good blend of hops as well as a, um, a good um, balance of grains. So a lot of wheat, a lot of oats um, and and barley malt. Um, so both malted wheat and unmalted wheat and uh, malted oats and unmalted oats. I mean,
2: what I personally really like about this is that you have seem to have got bags of that hop aroma, hop, hop flavour, without it being necessarily uh, too thick on the mouthfeel. So it's still maybe for the Imperial IPA, Ken, just so you know, a bit too easy to drink <laughs> around 9%. <Yeah. laughs> so I think it's very good for you that at 8am in the morning, you're not joining us on this particular part, <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's so fruit fruity and flavorful. You know, we joked about the other beers being dangerous at the bar. This one in the pub in Chico on a hot day. I, I know. I know that I'm speaking to Steve here. We could <laughs> easily sing a couple of these. It's superbly drinkable. So, I mean, thank you very much. What the branding on the cans was that again? A deliberate step away from the traditional.
1: It, it was so when we did the um, the first hazy, uh, we had no idea how successful it would be, and we thought it was maybe going to be a one year. Launch that we would, um, you know, enter into that uh, that marketplace and and just see how it went. It's turned out to be it's the number one hazy in the United States, um, and it's uh, approaching the volume of pale ale um, as far as what we're selling. So it's really, yeah, it's, wow, uh, done amazingly well. It's uh, it's been growing at double digits or triple digits since we released it. Um, and we thought, I think our projections, uh, and I'm probably going to get it wrong, but I think our projections the first year were 40,000 barrels, and we ended up doing 80. And um, the next year, I think we projected it was going to slow down, and we ended up doing you know, almost 200,000 barrels. So it, it, um, it it's taken us by surprise how popular it is and became. Um, and, again, I think it's because people are looking for a lot of hop flavor but not necessarily uh, everyone enjoys the hot bitterness so it's an alternative to a um to a um, you know a, a west coast ipa in the way that uh you're getting most of what people are looking for and and i guess less of what some people object to uh, yeah i mean it's
2: i think it's still got it may not have that um massive bitter hit but it's definitely got a a piney resinous, it's still got a, a bite to it there's still a finish and it, sometimes with what i find with maybe some of the cloudier beers and some of the softer ones is that you don't really get a finish it is a continuation this one gives you a finish but that finish says drink more
1: yeah it's it's actually you know these beers um are incredibly expensive to brew and difficult to brew because they have literally pounds and pounds of hops per barrel um so the, the hopping is uh, triple or more quadruple than what our pale ale would be. Um, but you're really trying to get the flavor extracted and not the bitterness. And so how you use them is quite a bit different. You, you don't boil many of them. Um, so all these hops end up added to the fermenter. When the fermenter's in the middle of fermentation, we add a bunch. And then we add more after fermentation uh, when the beer's aging. So... We're utilising just an incredible amount of hops, but using them really just to extract the, uh, the nuances of flavour rather than the bitterness. I'm just going
2: to sip for a little moment. I'm just going to sip for a moment and then fall back. <laughs> <laughs> and all that Ken will see on the screen is my feet in the air.
0: <laughs> just, just while we're drinking this, Ken, you've, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times and, and, and there's no avoiding it really. Um, the last year has been really difficult for everybody. Well, worldwide um, how has um, covid impacted on Sierra Nevada
1: yeah it's been a brutal year for you know everybody um, around the globe certainly um, and some industries have been you know really hard hit um, you know restaurants and bars particularly um, and, and we operate uh, uh, three um, public, Places. We've got um, a pretty good-sized restaurant in Chico. We've got a small tasting room in Berkeley, California, so right in the Bay Area. And then we've got a, a large um, restaurant uh, pub in North Carolina. And all those closed just about a year ago. And we have not opened them up to the public since um, we've kept them closed. We have done some food to go and take out out of the Chico and, and uh, Mills River, North Carolina locations to... Uh, at least keep some, some business going. Um, but we lost, uh, you know, 95% of that part of our business. And uh, um, the whole uh, on-premise part of our business, which was um, well, nearly a quarter, that went away uh, almost overnight as well. And so uh, we took a dramatic hit, you know, when, when all the... Restaurants and, and bars were forced to close across the country, uh, or most all of them anyway. Um, you know that part of our business just went to zero. So we pivoted as quickly as possible. There was increased demand for uh, product in cans, um, and there immediately became a can shortage uh, because that was happening. You know across the the industry that um, you know draft beer was was not a thing anymore, and everybody was going to cans or bottles. So uh, you know, we shifted uh, our teams, and we you know tried to uh, secure supplies to keep keep business going. Um, the pantry loading, the buy-in that um, you know a lot of people started stockpiling, and and, uh, and toilet paper and beer and other other essentials were uh, cleared off the shelves pretty quick. Um, and so we uh, you know had a surge in in uh, that uh, package product, um, and you know, we had to sort of remobilize our teams. We, we tried to find work for all of our restaurant uh, folks, and we have, you know, we had groups that were doing concerts and uh, beer festivals, and all those other uh, uh, public events got canceled, and so we uh, had nearly 400 people displaced out of our company, um, and we found, uh, you know, jobs um, around the brewery and um, you know, tried to keep uh, most everybody going, but it's been a you know pretty difficult year and we're, you know, now starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, but it's um you know, it's going to be still quite a few months, I think we're we're starting to try to pick a date when we're going to open our restaurants again to the public. Um, and it, it'll be in the next uh, hopefully the next three or four months that we'll open those back up again. Um, you know, we have to do it safely for our, our team members and for the public. Uh, we uh, in North Carolina, it was a hugely popular site and we would get um, nearly three quarters of a million of visitors uh, through the brewery a year. And so just the exposure to our production team members and, and um, um, you know, our operations um Caused us to, you know, not really want to uh, expose, um, you know, that many people to you know, the potential to get sick, and so we, you know, we've shut down tours, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to a point we can open that back up again.
0: And and obviously there were plans in place for, for the future for Sierra Nevada, and, and and they have probably changed a little bit due to to, to COVID. But where where do you? see the brewery going and and where do you see yourself going ken because i'm, I'm assuming you've you've finished building things now or <laughs> do, do you still need to build more yeah actually i'm, I'm
1: just <laughs> launching into a new project so i'm, I'm getting <laughs> getting in some new packaging equipment and and we're doing you know stuff like this now i don't know if you guys have, have seen uh we're, no we're, no we're, that's hard, hard kombucha we're not exporting into the uk but we've been um producing hard kombucha now we've put up uh, a separate little uh, area and packaging lines to do um alternative kinds of fermentations and beverages so we're we're having fun with that um the um you know the uh, innovation side of our business is, is something I'm still involved in so I I uh, I go in Every week, and taste uh, a lot of what our, our innovation team is working on. Um, some of it's beer, and some of it's not beer. Uh, so we're we're having fun with that. Um, you know, as we talked earlier, staying relevant with the consumer today is, is really the the key to you know keeping our company healthy and strong and moving forward. And so we're we're always looking at ways to um, you know delight our consumers and come up with things that um are memorable and delicious and you know, maybe beer maybe some some other beverages
0: and, and ken are you ever going to stop or or you just is is this is this it now for you are you just are you just always going to be involved
1: well i mean i'm i'm trying to retire so i would say i'm semi-retired right now i have um, uh, i turned over the reins i'm not the ceo anymore i'm the and chairman of the board, I have a great CEO uh, who's been in the industry almost as long as me. Um, and you know, with two kids involved, we'll you know see what roles they want to have in the future. Um, but um, as long as I'm having fun, I'll, I'll continue to do it. But um, I do like riding my bike and doing other things as well, so I'll, I'll try to find more time for that and spend time with my family and my wife. And, and
0: just, just one
1: final question, really. If, if there
0: was a single beer uh, other than one of your own that you wish you could have brewed which 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 is that beer
1: boy um, you know I've traveled the, the the world quite a bit I've drunk beers from you know hundreds and hundreds of breweries and and you know as I said earlier today there's just some really interesting and great beers out there and um, you know, there are styles that we have dabbled with, but don't regularly produce that I, I love. Um, um, I, I've got memorable drinking experiences uh, in places like Bomberg, Germany, where I've, uh, I've visited many times over the years. There's a, a, a malting company there, a famous um, malster that supplies malts all around the world, wireman um, But there's a, uh, you know, the smoked beers, Rausch beers that um, um, I've had some of my most memorable times sitting in, in some of the pubs in Bomberg drinking um, smoked black beers, smoked over Alderwood. Um, um, so I, I wouldn't say there's um, um, there's one beer that I would wish I had produced. There's beers that I have um, marveled over the, the setting, the. Friends, the experience um, you know, I've traveled in Belgium and drank some great beers with monks. I've uh, I've traveled uh, to Czechoslovakia and drunk some um, you know really made well-made pilsners. Um, so um, I'm not going to pick one. I'm just going to say it, it has a lot to do with the, the friends you're with and and um, you know a style of beer that um, you know lends itself to the occasion.
0: How often have we
1: said that, Martin?
0: The that the, the beer is about time and place
2: isn't it time and place definitely mm. it can it can just set off a whole uh string of memories which you can recall 20 30 years later just with a sip of the beer and in, in even a different place so mm. i think that's really well answered
0: ken thank you so much for your time uh and and the insight that you've given us into um not just beer but Coming up with the idea of growing a beer, growing a brewery, building a brewery. I mean, you've you've hand built what three of your own breweries in in, in, in your life. You've you've learned all the skills that were needed. Um, it's been a real pleasure to to talk to you and to drink these beers with you. And all all we can say is the very best for your semi retirement, um, and just just carry on enjoying riding that bike
1: yep thank you we'll thank you ken. thank you cheers okay cheers
0: well mate wasn't that just the most amazing afternoon that we've had oh it was amazing uh, it wasn't just amazing it was i
2: wish we could have just carried on for a lot longer just chatting when i say chatting listening to ken I could have sat there all afternoon drinking a wide range of Sierra Nevada beers, just listening to Ken tell me about 40 years of it. It was absolutely stupendous afternoon with him.
0: I I couldn't agree more. And were it not for the fact that due to the time differences, Ken needed to go and have his breakfast, Um, I I think probably you and I would have carried on for for, for many, many hours. Yeah, much to his uh,
2: pain we would have carried on um you know he, bless him he was drinking coffee while we were tucking into torpedo
0: i, I know it's and, and and that's just mad but i i think one of the things we've got to thank for this is is is, is you know the world that we now live in and you, you know the fact that i've said this before that the zoom has just made the world a little bit smaller and, and we've been able to connect with people that we would never have thought that we've been able to connect with. And obviously for both you and I, Sierra Nevada have a very special place in our beer journeys. But it's not just us. It, it's many others as well, because we did recently ask a question um, on the opinions polls in terms of is there a single beer that has had the biggest impact of your on your beer journey? And there were a lot of people that came back with Sierra Nevada parallel. So beer bear. At Yogi Beer 81 said Sierra Nevada Palau changed what I thought beer could be completely. Alan at Alan Pierce said Sierra Nevada Palau probably got me going, thought it was great. Then I had Torpedo. Wow.
2: From Jolly Beer Boy at Jolly Beer Boy. Entirely cliche, but Sierra Nevada Palau. I decided to try it as it was. One of two for a fiver off at my local where I drank exclusively Carling. And after those first two bottles, all I wanted to do is find more beer like that. And here I am 10 plus years later. And finally, from Pete McKerry, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, without a shadow of a doubt.
0: And, and that's not just us, is it, mate? There are so many people out there that have got this affinity with Sierra Nevada, particularly the Pale Ale but also with all of the beers that they produce. And I, I think the discussion that we had with Ken there just just highlighted the, 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 the passion and the, the, the fact that essentially he's poured his entire life into this brewery, hasn't oh,
2: he? His life, his essence, his soul. I mean, you know, he was talking about, you asked him at the end, what are his plans? And he's talking about semi-retirement and it appears his version of semi-retirement is to work a 10 hour day. He, he him him and his family are invested in this company the come I'm not even sure he looks at it as a company so to speak uh, that's probably the wrong way of describing it but it, it's it's a family yeah, isn't it it's a family it's his essence it's like that ready brick glow almost it just encompasses the whole experience of it and for as far as I'm concerned, long may it continue and you know if him and his family can carry it forward, and bring more of the family into it, and they carry on bringing out those classic core beers. But carry on in, you know, making new ones like the fantastic haze imperial IPA. Then, brilliant!
0: Bang on, Ken. You are still on it, mate. Absolutely, and we're so grateful that Ken gave up his. Breakfast time to, to, to spend with, with us, talking to us about the, the the beers and his journey in the brewery, and, and and for me the the key thing there is that Sierra Nevada's approach to brewing and the benchmark that the Palau has achieved is truly unrivalled in brewing. I, I can't think of anything else that is up there with it. Um, but
3: don't just take our word for it. Cheers. Hey guys, it's Ross from Amity. So the simple fact of it is without Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, we wouldn't be into craft beer in the way that we are. It was certainly one of the first beers that I picked off the shelf in the local supermarket and that it wasn't a traditional English ale or English bitter. And the sheer fact that it tasted and smelt amazing and so different to anything else around at the time meant that it, it just got me curious about what else was out there and from there it led to Anchor, to Thornbridge, to Brewdog, and obviously the rest is history. I think without Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, it's likely that we wouldn't have set up Amity. You know, our our Sunnybank US Pale Ale, it's an ode to Sierra Nevada Pale, and beers like it, of course. You know, that classic US hops, the classic balance of molten citrus. You don't see breweries going for this anymore, and I think that's a huge shame. Uh, and actually it shows the legacy of Sierra Nevada Pale in that it is still out there, it's still on store shelves. It's still selling in the UK and actually I think in, it's actually in growth in the US too. Uh, it's down to that incredible lasting appeal of a beer, you know, balance, flavour, consistency. It's all things that we should be looking for in beer, you know, as well as the fun, new and different sides of things. For me, it is a beer without compare.